At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Well, I just want to dive right in this morning and ask a big question here. What is most important to you right now? What is the most important thing in the world for you in this very moment, in this very time? Maybe you would say it would be the security of your family, making sure that, that everybody's taken care of, everything's secure, everything's okay. Perhaps you would, you would say, you know, the most important thing today is, is my health, the health of, of my body, physically, all of that. That's most important. Maybe you'd put our country at the top of the list and say America, whatever that means, however you define that, whatever that looks like for you, that's most important for us today. That's most important for me. Or maybe your political party or however you see those things, that would be the most important deal, the most important thing right now. There's a lot going on in our country right now and just in our world, so you might have the economy up there, you might have education uh, up there. There's just a myriad of things that you could be saying in this moment, uh, this morning, is the most important thing in the world right now. What could that be? What is of utmost importance for your life today? But, but think beyond just today. What is the utmost important thing in your life for perhaps this week, perhaps this month, even for the rest of the year? Maybe, maybe take a, a piece of paper or just your smartphone there, whatever you can, and write down something. What is it that is of utmost importance, most importance for you? I want to address this morning what I believe is something deep that we as human beings, but we as Christians and, and the church, I believe that we're in danger of forgetting. It's really pervasive in our society right now, but I think it's become very apparent that it's a reality that we're missing as Christians even today. We may give lip service to the idea that I'm about to lay out here in just a moment, and, and by saying that, we affirm as Christians, what I think I'm going to challenge you with and share in just a moment. We say, yes, that is right, but it really, in practicality, often becomes just that, lip service. We're forgetting what should be the most important reality for us, and, and throughout the duration of our lives, we begin to replace what should be primary, what should be most important, what should have first place with other things, other priorities, other realities. We see it in the way our world is falling apart. We see it in the way perhaps our lives are struggling and wrestling and feel like they're falling apart. And I think for followers of Jesus, we have forgotten whose kingdom we are a part of. And we've ignored the relationship that we are to have with the king in light of the, part, the reality of being a part of his kingdom. Let me unpack what I mean by that for us here in the scriptures this morning. Colossians 1.13 is where I have chosen to pick the beginning place of our text this morning. This is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. He's writing to them to instruct, encourage, build them up, to guard them from error. And he's been talking about the glorious nature of God and what God has done. And he's been praying this blessing over them. And in verse 13, he begins to identify what God has done for his church, what God has done for his people, for us today. He, God, verse 13, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. 
Uh, here in just two verses is the very essence and nature of a good news for us, of the gospel for us. A beautiful reality that God has delivered us. Notice that first word, delivered there. It's, it's the idea of taking something, rescuing fr- someone from danger. Um, one dictionary defines this Greek word this way, to rescue from danger with the implication that the danger in question is severe and acute. That God has rescued us from a deep danger, a severe danger, a danger that would destroy us. Where would that be? From the domain of darkness. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. What is that domain? The domain of our sin, the domain of Satan, the domain of this world and death. Here's good news for us. Not anything that we have done, not any good deed that we have accomplished or or nice work that we have fulfilled, not anything that we have done, but God himself has rescued us from the deep danger that we were in of our sin, of our rebellion to him, of the present darkness over us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. He's he's relocated us. He's brought us into a new sphere of reality, into a new existence, into a new kingdom. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been taken out of the country of death and brought into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of life. This is good news for us today. For all who would turn from their sin and embrace Jesus, this is what God has done for you. He's loved you, rescued you, delivered you, brought you out of darkness and the slavery and the shackles of darkness and sin and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. A kingdom of love and grace affirmation and beauty. And and the Son has done this in this way, verse 14, in whom we have redemption. That word there describes how God has done that. He has bought us back. He he has seen our slavery. He has seen our, our bondage. He has seen our death. And Christ came and he laid down his life for us. He redeemed us by going to the cross and dying the death that we deserve and taking the sin that was on us and paying for it in his body on the cross and rescuing us, redeeming us. And that redemption culminates in the forgiveness of our sins. Wiping clear any offense, any guilt, any shame that stood between us and God the Father cleansing us and purifying us in every way. Jesus has lived and died and was raised to life again to rescue you and me from the slavery and dominion of Satan's sin and death and to adopt us into his family, to write us into his will with a full inheritance and to place us as citizens of a new kingdom with a glorious king, with a gracious capacity of love for us. That's the identity that we walk into. That's the reality that we sit in today. Every follower of Jesus exists and sits in this kingdom, delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son forever and ever. Hallelujah. Praise God. 
And that says something then about how we should live. Because if we recognize this to be true, that we are citizens of his kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of Christ, then it should change how we live. And this is what I believe we're forgetting today. It's, it's what I believe we're, we're losing among the church. Let me put it this way very clearly. That citizens of Christ's kingdom, followers of Jesus Christ, citizens of Christ's kingdom, center their lives on Christ in everything. This is where I believe we're missing it. This is where I believe that we have lost our identity in this culture and in this day and in this time. That citizens of Christ's kingdom must center their lives on Christ in everything. When we see that to be true, and when we recognize the identity that we have in Christ, of who we are in Christ, and the kingdom that we exist in in Christ, it changes everything. We live out of a new reality. We live as citizens of a new kingdom. And that's where we must maybe this morning begin to reevaluate how we're living and who we're living for. And what Paul does in the rest of this passage, in verses 15, actually all the way down to verse 20, is he picks up what I believe was an ancient Christian hymn. And he begins to present this hymn to the church in Colossae to say, this is what you sing every week. This is what you say about Jesus. And I just want to reorient you to what you're singing and saying and help you see Jesus so that you know how to live. As citizens in his kingdom, I want you to figure out, I want you to see how we are to live in light of him. I'm going to only take the time to go through verse 18 this morning. If I had two or three hours, we'd do the whole thing. There's probably 10 messages here that I could get to, but I'm only going to go to verse 18, okay? So no worry, we'll get lunch in time. But I want us to see here the way that Paul does is as he presents the high view of Christ, he presents a radiant vision of who Jesus is to help us see who we are to be as citizens in his kingdom. So we're going to look at Christ. We're going to see Jesus this morning. And in seeing him, we'll be able to see our place, how we are to live as citizens in his kingdom. What does this look like? Well, let me take us through three things this morning First one is in verses 15 and 16. Let me talk about Christ here this morning. Paul says that Christ, he, the son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the beloved son, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and for him. What a dense reality about who Jesus is. The, first of all, Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation, the material reality of the invisible God. Where we cannot see God, Christ put on flesh and blood, became a human being, fully God, fully man, and embodied the reality of the God we cannot see. Scripture is telling us that Christ here is the material representation, the concrete evidence, the embodied reality of God with us. John, the apostle, talks about it this way in John 1, 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the invisible God. Yet the one and only son, this son, the beloved son, who is himself God 
and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. I mean, this is a profound reality that, that no one has seen God, but yet Christ reveals to us and shows us and displays to us who God is, what God is like, because he himself is very God. When we see Jesus, we are seeing the fullness and the exact representation of God himself. We are seeing God himself. And so the ancient creed could say, God of God, light of light. Because who Christ is, he is God, beautifully displaying who he is for us. But furthermore, he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, here's a good question to ask. What does this firstborn of all creation mean? Does that mean that Jesus is some sort of like created, the best and first created being of all that's created? Well, no, that's not what's implied or meant here in this term. Being the firstborn isn't meaning that, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would teach, that Jesus was the first made creature. He's not that. This statement here, this term that Paul is using, is a term to connotate rank. He's talking to us us about where Jesus stands. Not the first made creature, but the highest in rank over all things. Scripture is clear to help us with this. You can go to Psalm 89, verse 27, and there God speaks about King David. And in that Psalm, Psalm 89, 27, God says this, I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Now, David wasn't the firstborn of the family of Jesse. He was actually the youngest son. But here in using that term, God is saying, David, firstborn as highest in rank, highest of the kings of earth. And so here's how that's applied to Christ. He, Christ, is the highest in rank over all creation. No one stands above Jesus over all things. He is exalted first place above all. Why is that the case? Well, Paul spells it out even more clearly. This song just drives it home for us. Why is he first place, place, highest in rank above all things? Verse 16, for by him all things were created. He has the virtue of being first place above everything because he made everything. All things were made. All things were created. And and to get the scope of what this is, he he lays it out for us. Well, where? Maybe it's just, you know, all things that were created on planet Earth or all things that were created in the Eastern Hemisphere or all things that were created where? For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I mean, nothing is left out here of what Christ has created. When it says all things, it means all things. He is, by his power, by his excellency, by his glory, by his wisdom, made all things, all things created everywhere. It's an all-inclusive, encompassing reality. Jesus is the one who has made it all. Not just the one who's made it all, though. Notice here that he continues to use some prepositions here to help us understand. By him, all things were created, and through him, all things were created. He didn't just whip up some architectural plans and pass them off and say, hey, go make this, go create this, set it in motion. Through him, all things were created. It's the design of his agency. 
Christ speaking in, working, his creative power, creating all things. Again, the Apostle John helps us in John 1, 3, and he says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was in the game, creating everything all the time. He didn't delegate off part of it and say, you know, angels two and three, you guys handle that bit, and angel four and five, you know, get a contractor and go make that work. Christ, the creator, the one who's made all things through him, and without him, apart from him, was not anything made that was made. All things were made by him, all things made through him, and then again, all things for him. What's the goal or the aim of all creation? Not just to exist out there in some sort of random way, just to spin through the cosmos. It's not just to be. All things were made with him as the goal. All things created for him. Christ is the goal, the chief end of all creation. All the universe exists for Jesus Christ. It's all for him. It's the sum total of the reason everything is there. This is who Jesus is. Highest in rank, the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things, by him, through him, and for him. So what does that say to us? Where do we fit in this picture? And this is the first thing. We exist for Christ. You and I exist for the purpose and the glory and the good pleasure of Jesus Christ. Our existence, our being, it's not random. It's not just some sort of invaluable consequence of the universe floating off into itself. Our being, we exist because Christ has spoken us into existence, because he has made us and he has made us for his purposes, for him which means you have deep value, you matter. Your life today matters because Christ has made you. Our lives are not our own though. We exist for his good pleasure and glory. When I think about this, I think of a little bit of the bit of, of some of the AI-themed sci-fi stories. I like science fiction. Someone, you know, someone builds a robot and uh, they build the robot with the supreme intelligence, and the, the supreme intelligent becomes self-aware, figures that self out, and then it decides to rebel against its intended purpose from the creator, and everything goes bonkers from there on out. A lot of robot science fiction stories, that's the theme, right? But we're not just coded robots in order to please a deity that's bored with his own existence. God has made us as intelligent creatures. Christ has created us and lovingly formed us and fashioned us to exalt and to worship and to praise and to enjoy him forever and ever and ever. He's made us to be in love with him because he loves us. The purpose of our creation is our love to him, glory to him, and yet it is true. We've rebelled. Our hearts have been corrupted chosen our own way. And yet instead of pulling the plug or putting us down and ending it all, Christ came and he inhabited this corrupt place and took on our very physicality. The creator entered his creation in order to redeem us and to forgive us and to rename us and to bring us back into his kingdom of love. 
So where our lives have gone off the rails in rebellion against God, where we've chosen, I'm not going to live for the purposes of your glory. I'm not going to live to make Christ first place above all. Christ has come and died for us to rescue us, to realign us with him so that we can go back to our intended purposes, even greater purposes, to live for the glory of God in all things, to live for Christ. This is why Jesus must be the center, why he must have first place, because we exist for him. And whenever we step out of that design, we devalue him and his rightful place in the universe. This is what citizens of the kingdom of Christ, the beloved son, have to recognize My life is not my own. Your life is not your own. We've been bought by a price, double purchased by virtue of God's creation, by Christ creating us, and by virtue of his redemption. We are called to live for his glory in all things, for by him and through him and for him are all things. Brothers and sisters, our calling isn't to exist for the sake of the world, this culture, even this country. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom for him. By him, through him, for him. Are you living as a citizen of his kingdom? Are you living for the things of this world? What's your purpose? We exist for Christ why the Westminster Catechism reads, what is the chief end of humanity? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's the sum total of our lives, and it's a glorious purpose. As citizens of his kingdom, we exist for Christ. But Paul continues to talk about Jesus, and let's keep going here. Let's get our hearts enlarged with a view of the greatness of Jesus. Verse 17 Furthermore, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And two phrases here, Paul says, first of all, that he, Christ, is before all things. This speaks for us to consider his existence. When has Christ not existed? He has eternally existed, and he's excellent. Before all things speaks of the fact that Christ is eternal in every way. Before anything was made, there was Christ. Before a word of the universe was spoken into existence, let there be light, there was Christ. He is eternal in all that he is. But in saying that he is before all things, Paul isn't just saying that he has existed eternally. He is saying that he has existed as the highest place always. Before all things can connotate time, but it also can connotate rank and status. He stands at the front of the line. He's preeminent, highest position in all the universe. And because of that reality, because he is before all things in time and in stature, he holds all things together. This is a profound reality about Christ. Many view the formation of the universe and God's impact in the universe as if God spoke all things into existence or he created all things, and then he was like, okay, we got a planet, we got a universe, we got stars and solar systems rolling. Let's spin this thing off and get it moving. And then I'm gonna step back and go on vacation for like the next millennia or three. Like God is, it's deism. God started everything up, he made it, and then he spun it off and said, have fun with that. Don't burn the place down, which we're not too good at not doing. 
That's not what Christ has done, though. Here, in these just simple phrases, he says, God has stayed in the game. Christ has stayed in the game on his creation. He's made all things, and he's staying with it. He's holding all things together, sustaining everything. The front of the line, the highest in rank, is keeping us existing in this very moment. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You and I don't take another breath without Jesus sustaining it and giving it to us. It applies to the physical sustaining and ordering of all things and the spiritual sustaining and ordering of all things. Every planet in the solar system in the universe is on its fixed orbit because of Christ. Every electron keeps its place around the protons and neutrons of every atom in the universe because Christ sustains it. We breathe air that hasn't escaped out into the dark reaches of outer space because Christ has declared gravity to hold all things together to keep our atmosphere in place so that we can breathe and in the perfect balance, we can still be standing on the ground and not crushed under the weight of gravity. His wisdom, he holds all things together and he holds us together spiritually. Consider Jesus' own words to us, Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air, how they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Huh, yeah. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? cares for us. He sustains us. The psalmist can write in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's Christ sustaining us. Christ being near us. That's who he is for his people. He's holding our lives together in this very moment. 2020 is not chaos to Jesus Christ because he continues to hold his people together. He is the sustainer of all things, especially his people. And that's where we must acknowledge him in that reality. When we acknowledge that he is at the front of the line, at the highest position above all, he is the one who sustains all things, then we can realize who we are. And that's the second point, that we are sustained by Christ. We are his dependents. If you think about this, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness, from the slavery of sin, from the accusations of the devil, from the bondage of death into the kingdom of his son who loves us, who sustains us, who gives to us life and breath and every good thing. We are dependents on Christ. If Jesus were to fill out a tax return form, he could claim every one of us, even though many of us would like to fill out our own. We are the ones who are in need of supply and help and power. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think for us as Christians, as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are so busy today trying to build our dependency on this world. 
We're trying to look to this world to sustain us and to supply for us the things that we think will give us security. And I'm talking here about ultimate things like peace, like hope, like joy, like security, like satisfaction. We are banking on the world to give us these things. We are telling ourselves that if we check a certain box come November or if you're voting by mail earlier, that that will be the place of security for us. And it's not because the world doesn't sustain us. Christ does. Christ as king means that he is the one who gives to and provides for his children everything that they need. And so how rude of us is it to to look at the things of this world and say, well, they'll provide joy, they'll provide satisfaction, they'll provide security, when we have Christ who's saying, I give it all for you freely. Come to me. We look to the empty cisterns and wells of this world thinking we can get a drink of living water there. And Jesus says, no, I'm the living water. It'd be like my kids saying, you know what, Dad? I don't want security and provision from you. The neighbors next door, I think, have it better. I'm going to go hang out with them. I love our neighbors, but they don't have it the way that I can for our kids. Why do we look outside of Christ for soul-sustaining nourishment, protection, and the joy that he offers us eternally? If we're citizens of his new kingdom, we must remember that Christ is the sustainer. He holds all things together. Not this world, not this country, not this culture. Christ. Christ. And that takes us to the third view of Jesus. Who is he? Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Again, here Paul speaks of two of the realities of who Christ is. The beginning, again, Speaking of Christ's position, he's at the front of the line, highest in rank, highest position. He is the leader and supreme authority. He is the beginning and the firstborn, or he's the beginning, the head of the church. I'm sorry, I got mixed up there. He is the head of the body, the church, and the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the head of the church. The church's leadership, the church's authority, the church's View is led all by Christ, Christ, the leader, the head, the source, the supply for all of us. It's who he is. He is the supreme authority over his people. Furthermore, he has declared the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he stands at the front of the line. And again, this term firstborn here doesn't mean first created being. It means that he is the one who is highest in rank over all who would be raised from the dead. The firstborn of the resurrected from the dead, the highest in rank. Again, Jesus stands at the front of the line. In regards to creation, Christ stands above all. In regards to redemption, Christ stands above all. So Paul can land with this conclusion because he's the head of the body, the church. I'm not the head of this church. Pastor Chris Brooks is not the head of Woodside, the church as a whole. Christ is the head of his church. We are his people, part of his body, members of his kingdom. What's the result on that? The end of verse 18. This is why I stop here, because this phrase has to get into our hearts. That in everything, he might be preeminent. That in everything, 
he might come to have first place. Jesus will be first. He is first. And he is working in his people. He is calling us today to make sure that he is first in our lives. This is the reality of Christ. He stands as creator and first and highest above all things. He is God. He stands highest above all things because he sustains all things. And he stands above and for his people, the church, by virtue of his resurrection, so that he might have first place in everything. I mean, just think about the, the nature of what in everything encompasses here. Like, let's, let's just get that around. It's not just like, okay, well, I'll have first place on Sunday mornings. No, and everything means in everything. There's a universality to this. Jesus will have first place. He must have first place in everything. He's attained this by his life and death and resurrection from the dead. And this means something in, very important for us as citizens of his kingdom. If you will say, yes, Christ, God has rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, it means that you're part of his body. It means you stand in line with those who would be raised from the dead. And as a result of that, your position and mine Awaiting the hope that we have of the resurrection is that in everything he might have first place. Nothing is excluded from that. Christ first must be our heart's mantra, our heart's statement of life. In everything, in your work, Christ first. In your leisure, Christ first. In your ambitions, Christ first. In your politics, Christ first. In your family, Christ first. In your parenting, Christ first. In your dating, Christ first. In your eating and drinking and educating and civic engagement. In everything, Christ first. He must have this place. It is his rightful place. Will we give it to him? First in our prayers, first in our giving, first in our obedience, first in our faith, first in our worship. Too much today do we have the tendency to see Jesus as just an add-on to our lives. Just a spiritual supplement, like a vitamin that we would take to help us feel better or to be stronger. No, Christ is no vitamin. He is no supplement to make our lives better. He must be the center. And if he's not the center, we've been worshiping idols. We've been loving the things of this world. We've been placing other things as first, of preeminent in our lives. When we put Christ out of our priorities and out of our plans and out of our endeavors because we frankly don't want him or need him, it makes a mess for everything. So I come back to it. Christ first. It's the utterly shocking emphasis of this passage that we have been created and rescued by Christ himself. Not some abstract idea of religion, but by Christ himself so that he might have first place in all things. Because he is first place in all things. And this is what the Christian life is all about. Giving and exalting Christ to the highest place. He won't have second place in your life. Third is a, it's an offense to him. Because of who he is, he must have the highest place. So friends, let me ask you this morning, what is most important for you? What'd you write down? 
who has first place in your lives? How do you know? Is it Christ? We exist for him. We are sustained by him. And because of who he is, we must give him first place in everything. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.